This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Some of you may have seen this slide because I plagiarized it from Dr. Jesty years ago, but I, I, I can't resist showing it. Uh, if you live to the age of 100, you have it made because very few people die past the age of 100. Uh, and I think apropos for a talk on depression and bereavement in late life. Uh, my goals today are first to talk about the uh, presentation and treatment of depression in late life, uh, talk about some of the issues that uh, complicate the diagnosis and treatment a little bit, uh, and I want to have at least uh, half of my time to talk on, on bereavement, which is related to depression and late life, but not the same at all. Uh, and um, I will try to make sure to not speak too terribly long because I think it's more important to have time to respond to some of your questions and thoughts and comments uh, than it is for me to lecture on, on what's important to me. I'm going to start by what depression is not. Uh, when I use the word depression, I'm, I'm not talking about having a bad day. We, we all have those. Uh, I'm not talking about an attitude uh, or, or even normal sadness. Uh, everyone here feels sad from time to time. Uh, when I talk about depression, when I use that word, I'm talking about depression with a capital D, major depressive disorder, uh, which is very different from a bad day, a bad attitude, normal sadness, and is certainly not part of normal aging. But sometimes as people get older, they confuse depressive symptoms with, I'm just getting old, uh, rather than recognizing that something may be going on that may warrant attention and, and even clinical attention. So what is depression? It's a miserable condition. Maybe that's the best single definition. If you feel really, really miserable, good chance you've got a depression with a capital D. It affects everybody, men, women, rich, poor, young, old. None of us are immune. Uh, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I venture to say everybody in this room has either been depressed, has been married to someone who's been depressed, has offspring who have been depressed, parents who have been depressed, or close friends and relatives who have been depressed. It, it, it doesn't escape any of us, so we all know what depression is. It's responsible for enormous suffering, morbidity, and mortality. Uh, when you're depressed, you feel like you've always been depressed and you always will be. It, it has a, its timelessness, which may be partly responsible for why suicide becomes an all, an all, a, a possible strategy for people who are depressed because they feel they're always going to be that way, that there's no end in sight, they always have been that way, uh, regardless of what the facts may be. Uh, the good news is that major depression is treatable. Uh, so if it is recognized and if it is diagnosed uh, and if the person uh, does get care, uh, the care generally can be very, very helpful, and we'll get into that a little bit. Abraham Lincoln said, if what I feel were equally distributed to the entire human race, there would not be one cheerful face left on earth. And I think that goes to the depth of despair of someone who's depressed. And, and uh, uh, Mr. Lincoln, from what we know, uh, suffered from a mood disorder, maybe bipolar mood disorder, uh, but had bouts of depression from adolescence on, and uh, I think knew what he was talking about when he talked about depression. 
Late life depression is common. If we look at the right, at, at the bar graph, it, it looks like depression is actually getting less common as we get older, so that by the time you're 75 or even older than 85, uh, major depressive disorder occurs in less than 2% of the population uh, in those age groups compared to closer to 6% in, in the younger middle age group. Uh, but I think that that may not be quite accurate. I, I think that depression probably is a bit more common. Reasons why this graph is the way it is, and, and this is, you know, if, if you're a med student and you're going to take an exam, the answer to the question is it's less prevalent in late life. In reality, I don't think that's true. But, but there is a what we call a cohort effect, and that is my grandchildren their friends and neighbors uh, have depression more so than when I was their age. The cohort effect is depression's occurring with greater frequency at an earlier stage of life so that when my grandchildren become my age, their bars will be closer to that bar of 55 to 64 because of that cohort effect. Also, there's a, a bias, a healthy survivor bias. If you happen to be uh, depressed throughout your life, if you've had major depressions, you're less likely to live this long. So the people with the more severe major depressions die earlier and uh, are, are less likely to be in this age group. So it looks like the prevalence is going down. There are diagnostic issues. If you go door to door, so this, on the right, this data is based on you know, knocking at a door and doing a survey, you know, asking questions about depression. Well, if you go to the door and you knock on the door and, and you ask somebody, gee, in the last two weeks, have you had any trouble sleeping? Uh, a lot of older people don't remember what they've been like for the last two weeks. Uh, if they're anything like me, uh, I, this, if, I'm going to admit to something. In the, uh, uh, when I wash my hair in the morning, about two minutes afterwards, I check whether my hair's wet to make sure did I wash it or not. And if it's wet, I'm still not sure if I use the soap or not. Uh, that's starting to be true with brushing my teeth now, too. And I, uh, so we forget. Uh, that's part of normal aging. And uh, so forgetting symptoms of depression may be part of why uh, it doesn't show up when you, when you ask about depression in an interview. Uh, there's stigma associated, and more stigma uh, with an older age group than younger age group. So people are less likely to admit to having been depressed or feeling depressed or being down in the dumps, or certainly less likely to admit to feeling suicidal, which is one of the symptoms of depression. There's a misattribution. As, as we get older, people often think, well, they're not depressed. They're just getting older. Of course I'm depressed. I'm, I'm getting older. And uh, so they misattribute. Uh, what they're going through to age or to other illnesses or to life events rather than understanding that when you're feeling down in the dumps and blue for two or more weeks and, and you feel like uh, nothing is enjoyable or pleasurable, that that might be a symptom of depression and not just life. Atypical presentations may be typical. So it's not uncommon for an older depressed person rather than feeling sad and unhappy as their main effect to be, feel irritable or to feel helpless, so that some of the symptoms are, are, are a little bit different in older people than in younger people. Uh, Sub-threshold or minor depression may be the rule. So major depressive disorder is no more common in, in older people than in younger people. But what may be much more common is having depressive symptoms that are there, that are interfering with your life, 
but not so severe or not so many to actually meet our criteria for a major depressive disorder. Uh, so we call that subthreshold or, or minor depression, which can be a very prevalent and, and somewhat disabling problem in a lot of people as they get older. If we look at special populations, like individuals living in, a, in long-term care settings or visiting their primary care physician, the rates of depression are much higher. So, so depression is there. It's associated with a markedly diminished quality of life when, when you're depressed, uh, with difficulty with functioning uh, socially, physically, in all regards. Poor adherence to treatment, not only to treatment with antidepressants, but treatment with any other uh, disorder that you're being treated for. If you are also depressed, you're far less likely to take your antibiotics, to take your antihypertensive pills, to follow any medical regimen, to follow healthy eating, uh, uh, which may be uh, very important towards other health issues as well. Uh, it's associated with a worsening in chronic medical problems. Whatever other medical problems coexist with major depression, those problems tend to be more severe, more prolonged, uh, and, and have more dire consequences than in somebody with the same medical condition but without a major depressive disorder. It's associated with increased uh, morbidity and increased mortality. The, we think of the mortality being increased in people with major depression because suicide is associated with major depression, and suicide rates are high, particularly high in the elderly, uh, the high suicide rates. But, but depression doesn't kill only by virtue of suicide. It kills by virtue of other medical conditions uh, being worse and, and the person not taking good care of themselves. So there's lots of causes for the increased mortality rates in individuals with depression. But what do I mean by older? You're only as old as you feel, right? Uh, I, so as long... You know, I'm 70, I don't remember, 70-something. Uh, am I old? No, I'm not. Uh, I'm working. I have good health. Uh, so far, other than um, with washing my hair and brushing my teeth, I remember most things that are important to remember. Uh, uh, my, my children, my wife are alive and well, so life is good, and, and I'm still young. Uh, when I get a severe medical disorder or when I start to have cognitive symptoms, I won't be so young anymore. So I, I think old is, is really uh, very relative to a lot of other factors. Given that, there are a lot of age-related problems that we face as we get older that affect the presentation and diagnosis and treatment of depression, such as the likelihood of having medical comorbidity and taking lots of medications, the likelihood of cognitive symptoms, including full-blown dementias, uh, the likelihood of adverse life events occurring in our lives. Um, so first, depression and medical illness. Depression is very common in people with a whole host of medical illnesses. It tends to be underdiagnosed because we often misattribute the symptoms uh, to the medical illnesses, or we say, well, of course he's depressed. He's got a heart condition. But there is no of course. You can have a heart condition and not have a major depressive disorder. If you also have a major depressive disorder and a heart condition, you better recognize that depression and get it 
managed effectively so that your heart condition uh, can also be managed effectively. It tends to be undertreated in late life, and as I mentioned, it can be lethal. So this is just a list of some of the medications that can cause depressive symptoms. Virtually, I mean, I, it, a lot of people are taking meds for sleep. You're taking meds for hypertension. You're taking meds for your heart. You're taking meds for your cholesterol. Some of you are taking meds for, for cancer. Whatever you're taking meds for, they can cause some depressive symptoms. Uh, the biggest culprit is the one I have in bold, and that's polypharmacy. So it's not just one medication for one class, but if you're taking multiple medications, and many of us are, uh, that increases the likelihood for significant depressive symptoms occurring, whatever the meds are. Uh, and it also complicates one's response to antidepressant medications and the way we can use antidepressants. I also add on the list amphetamines and cocaine I, I've, and, and alcohol, which can cause depressive symptoms or, or worsen depression. And I mention these in part because um, I've been embarrassed many times, Just and I don't do this so much anymore, uh, but I did when I was younger, uh, think, gee, this older person who's you know, wealthy and done really well for his life and children are vibrant, they're not doing drugs. Uh, I don't have to ask too much about that, or if I ask once I can, and they say no, I can put it aside and assume that what's going on is, is unrelated to drugs. And, and I can't tell you how often I was wrong when I did that. Uh, so, so drugs, and especially alcohol, uh, we, we need to ask about, and, and certainly can uh, be related to depressive symptoms, to major depressive disorder, and, and worsening of depression if depression is otherwise there. This is a list of just some of the medical conditions where, uh, that have been associated with high rates of depression, post-stroke, any kind of cancer, particularly uh, lung cancers, cancer of the pancreas, uh, is, is well known to sometimes even present with depressive symptoms. Uh, heart disease, arthritis, Parkinson's, diabetes, all have high rates of depression associated with them. And when depression occurs in the context of the illnesses, as I mentioned, there's more suffering for the patient and their family, quality of life is diminished, the prognosis for the medical condition is worse until or unless that depression is treated, healthcare costs skyrocket, uh, uh, suicide is more likely, and other causes of premature death are more likely. Uh, the, uh, how do we diagnose depression? Sometimes depression can be very challenging to diagnose in the context of other illnesses. Think of uh, a lot of cancers uh, present with fatigue, difficulty sleeping, thoughts about death and dying because you have a, a potentially fatal illness. So how do you diagnose depression when you've got those symptoms that are attributed to this other problem? Uh, so there are some clues. Uh, one clue is certainly uh, just looking very sad, but sometimes older people, rather than looking sad when they're depressed, may look fearful. Uh, social withdrawal is a big, big cue. So the person who doesn't come out of his, uh, his or her um, uh, room to spend time with the grandchildren, to watch golf on TV, to play with the dog, just kind of withdrawing from all activities, that's a red flag. Decreased talkativeness, deterioration in self-care, and as I mentioned earlier, irritability can be a prominent symptom in, in anyone who's depressed, but especially in adolescence and in late life. Okay. Thought content. 
uh, brooding, self-pitying, just feeling overly pessimistic, especially if that's a change from one's normal optimistic frame of reference. Uh, a sense of failure that they just haven't accomplished enough in life, that they failed their family uh, or, or failed uh, their friends or someone else. Feeling punished, expressions of helplessness or hopelessness, low self-esteem, all symptoms of depression. And when any of those seem to be occurring, it's time to you know, step back, ask if you're depressed, and, and ask more of a history to get at whether this is now symptomatic of a major depression which requires treatment. And, and then I have understandability here. Never, never let understandability stand in the way of making a diagnosis. And, and we so often neglect to make a diagnosis of depression because someone's going through a bad life experience, uh, death of a family member, uh, retirement, losing a job, having financial problems, having bad health. Those are bad problems to have. Most of us are resilient, and we can get through those problems without a major depressive disorder. So we do that person a disservice by trying to understand why they might be sad and unhappy and a, and a lingering sadness and unhappiness, rather than saying, gee, those bad events have triggered a depression in a vulnerable person. Let's treat that depression. And, and then they can begin to deal with those other problems more effectively. Okay. So does, depress does treatment work? Good news, yes, it works. Uh, pharmacotherapy works, medications work, psychotherapy works. I'll talk a little bit about a collaborative care model which works and, and other uh, ways of intervening to help with depression. One of the issues with pharmacotherapy is that the, the meds tend to work, but as a, as a doctor, I want to start with lower doses because uh, of increased vulnerability to a whole host of side effects. Uh, so I'll start with low doses to make sure the person's tolerating the meds and build up very slowly and gradually. But it's also important to build up enough to not stop too soon or, or not hesitate to use a therapeutic dose if the person's tolerating a lower dose but isn't yet better or well. So start low, go slow, but don't stop too soon uh, are, are really the parameters to work with in using medications. All of the meds that we use for younger people with, with depression uh, are about equally effective in, in late life. Uh, and none of them is perfect. None of them works in about more than 50% of all people you try them with. So unfortunately, uh, trial and error is uh, the state of the art these days. And, and if your doctor uh, you know, starts you on a med and it isn't working and they try something else and that isn't working and they try something else, it's not because they're a bad doctor. It's, that's the nature of depression. Uh, and we do the best we can. We try and select the best medication based on preferences, based on side effects, based on some of the clinical properties of, of, of the depression. You know, for example, if, if in the person's depression they have lots of pain, you may want to select an antidepressant that treats pain as well as depression. So a serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor may be a more rational first uh, drug to try. If somebody uh, has a lot of weight gain as part of their depression, you may want to try an antidepressant 
which isn't going to increase that weight gain even more, but perhaps be associated with weight loss. So a medication like bupropion, which is associated with weight loss, may, may be a reasonable choice. If somebody um, isn't able to sleep at all, uh, you may try a, a, an antidepressant that's very sedating, like mirtazapine, uh, which unfortunately is associated with weight gain, but it's also associated with with sleeping more, and, and that may be an advantage for some people. So you try and weigh the side effect profiles, the clinical characteristics of the depression, the patient preferences, what's worked before and what hasn't worked before in selecting, uh, but all of the choices are about equally effective. And, and uh, unfortunately, none are perfect. We're still looking for better meds that work more quickly with less side effects. And this is just a, a list of different medications, the tricyclics, the MAOIs that we've had forever, the SSRIs, which came around in the 80s, the uh, SNRI, serotonin nor norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, and others that are available. And as I mentioned, uh, none are perfect. They all work about half the time. They're all about equally effective. And sometimes an individual may need to try one or more in order to find the right one for them. But we don't give up. We keep trying. What about psychotherapy? Does that work? Well, Freud said about psychotherapy that it's contraindicated in the elderly, and in Freud's day, that meant people age 40 and older. <laughs> there are a few of us in that category. And his rationale was that by the age of 40, the so-called elasticity of the mind is no longer there. Uh, we're not able to learn new things. He didn't use these words, I'm paraphrasing. But the accumulated crud of day-to-day -day life would render therapy interminable anyway, because there's so much going on. And the inevitable decline in health and well-being would negate any gains that you might get anyway from therapy. So I think this says more about Freud than it says about psychotherapy for the elderly. Uh, and fortunately, we no longer believe that. But, but other uh, major figures in, uh, in psychiatry, and especially in psychoanalytic thought, have, have echoed that. Uh, Jellifee in 1925 said, neurosis or psychosis is a better solution for late life problems than anything I can offer. Uh, uh, don't go to him. And uh, Fenichel said, given the life circumstances, neuroses may be the best adjustment. So uh, up until, and, and even when I trained, I, I pretty much learned that psychotherapy was something for, for young adults. Uh, and, uh, you know, by midlife, uh, think of something else to do. And, and what I learned was wrong. And, and we now know that people uh, throughout the life cycle uh, can benefit greatly from a variety of different psychotherapies. The three on top are the ones that have the largest database for effectiveness. Interpersonal psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and, and something we call problem-solving therapy. And I, I don't have time to go through what each of these are, uh, but these have been shown in, in several different studies. Each of them have been replicated in randomized controlled trials in uh, older individuals with depression as being very effective. They've also been used in older people with depression who have co-occurring medical disorders and have found that they're not only effective to treat the depression, but the co-occurring medical disorder generally gets better as well as the depression gets better. Other therapies that may be helpful but don't have as large an evidence database to support them, uh, one would be brief dynamic psychotherapy, and there, there are more evidence coming for that, but, 
but not as much as the others yet. Supportive psychotherapy, which I feel, if done well, can be very, very effective. Uh, and that is kind of working with somebody to maximize their strengths and adaptive capacities to educate, to support, uh, to encourage, uh, rather than some of the specific strategies that are used in these other uh, therapies. And it, it can be very effective. Uh, and finally, one that is vastly understudied, that, that I think is much more valuable, but we just don't have a lot of data and, and its use in, in older people with depression is family counseling and family therapy. Uh, I, I'd, I'd like to see us get more. But those are all there. Now, there are challenges to psychotherapy uh, in, in older people that have to be overcome. One would be the person and their family's own perceptions of aging. Time is limited, and, and who has time to see somebody once a week for several weeks? Uh, give me a med that will make me get better quickly because I don't have time. Uh, or, or just seeing themselves kind of overly influenced by Freud, uh, seeing themselves as they're too old to teach new tricks to, uh, their problems are fixed and unchangeable, and, and that's an attitude that has to be overcome. Uh, and it's an attitude that not only a lot of older people have about themselves, but sometimes their family members and children may have about them as well. And, and, and that's one of the reasons working with families is so important. But there are also a number of physical limitations that can affect uh, one's ability to uh, respond to psychotherapy. Uh, psychotherapy is talking and listening. And, and if you have significant hearing or visual problems, that can affect your ability to be in a talking and listening uh, environment. If you're not ambulatory, it may be very difficult to, uh, you know, get in a car, go to an office, climb the stairs, and then sit there for an hour uh, talking about yourself. So those are issues that may need to be overcome. Similarly, if, if you've got urinary urgency or incontinence, not an uncommon problem in older people, you may not be able to sit for an hour at a time talking without taking breaks. And, and you don't want to be humiliated. You need to see somebody who is aware of that as a possibility and provides breaks as necessary, which you wouldn't do for somebody who's 30 or 40. It wouldn't be necessary. Physical discomfort, if you have lots of pain, you may not be able to sit still. You may need to pace. You may need to walk around. You may need shorter sessions. Uh, transportation difficulties, a, a lot of older people uh, don't drive and uh, need other ways of getting to an office. Cognitive limitations, there are memory problems that are part of being older and in psychotherapy, which is a talk therapy, uh, not remembering things uh, uh, can get in the way of certain types of therapy. Uh, and reimbursement, um, you know, many of us have limited coverage, uh, both for medications and for psychotherapy, or some coverage is only for medications, and, and psychotherapy is expensive. So some of the ways of, of dealing with these, uh, a, somebody who works a lot with older people may provide written information for forms with large print and large writing spaces to accommodate fine motor skills and, and difficulty with vision. That can help. Audio taping sessions, so the person who is visually impaired may be able to go home and listen to uh, what went on uh, and the therapy. Uh, sitting closer to the patient, speaking slowly and speaking in tones that may be appropriate for somebody with various levels of hearing loss uh, might be an adjustment that a therapist has to make in working uh, with older people in psychotherapy. And certainly considering briefer, less frequent sessions, take-home support materials, teleconferencing, online supplements, 
there are lots of really good ones that we can recommend that people can use between sessions uh, so that the sessions can be less frequent uh, and less prolonged or useful. And, and last but, but for, certainly not least is uh, therapy can be so gratifying with older people as we take advantage of the vast wealth and knowledge and experiences that they can bring to the therapy. Uh, and, and I think any therapist who's going to be uh, worth their salt working with older people, I think needs to be very aware and respectful of the unique attributes that older people have that, that can make therapy so incredibly exciting to do, actually. Collaborative care. Uh, what is collaborative care? Well, that's kind of working in a within the medical environment so that if you're seeing a primary care physician, rather than also having appointments to see a psychiatrist or, or a psychologist uh, and, um, uh, you know, kind of doubling the difficulty, uh, it's working within the primary care setting. And in many collaborative care models, there may be a depression specialist, a nurse specialist, a social worker specialist who is knowledgeable about depression and evidence-based treatments that can provide collaboration uh, and um, uh, suggestions to the primary care physicians, uh, can also meet with the patients and provide information to them, sometimes can also themselves provide short-term psychotherapy within the context of uh, the primary care setting. Uh, many collaborative care environments will have a visiting psychiatrist who may come in for an hour a week not to see the patients, but to work with the staff and to educate the staff and to hear about cases and, and provide uh, insight and encouragement and collaboration. So that's the collaborative care model. It's been very, very effective. Uh, this one study uh, was a randomized controlled study in 14 primary care clinics uh, with patients who had either poorly controlled diabetes or coronary heart disease, or both, along with coexisting depression. And with the collaborative care model, compared to those who got treatment as usual, not only did the depression get better, but all of the indices of heart disease and diabetes got much better as well. So it went hand in hand with the collaborative care model. This is a different study. This is the uh, improved mood promoting access to collaborative care, the impact studies. Uh, which uh, were carried out in several diverse uh, settings and organizations in each of the eight primary care settings where this collaborative care model was done. The, the orange bars represent the collaborative care model impact. The blue bars usual care, and the orange bars are way taller than the blue bars, uh, meaning that the improvement in depression was far greater not only acutely, not only in the first couple of weeks that the person was there, uh, but also uh, it lasted for at least the, the year follow-up um, so that it was effective in each and every one of these settings. The summary of the study, not only was there less depression, but patients had less physical pain, better overall functioning, a higher quality of life, greater satisfaction, uh, for both the patient and the provider in those who were receiving the collaborative care model. This was effective uh, across the board with minorities as well uh, and was found to be cost effective. So even though there's an upfront price in paying for the, the, uh, the, the nurse specialist and in paying for the collaboration with the psychiatrist, those expenses are 
made up for very quickly uh, over time. So very effective. There are other evidence-based treatments uh, besides psychotherapy and medications. Exercise. Uh, exercise is probably, for most people with major depression, is not a monotherapy. It's not enough alone. Uh, for more minor depressions, and there, there's some really interesting studies, especially in older people with minor depressions, where exercise alone was an effective antidepressant. And exercise in combination with psychotherapies and with medications can be very, very effective and can shift somebody from a modest response to the psychotherapy or the meds to a robust response. Also, there's good data on people who exercise. Uh, when they get better, they stay better longer if they also exercised while they were getting better. Okay. So exercise. Bright light. And uh, the... The older data suggested that bright light therapy uh, was very effective for people who had seasonal mood disorders. That is, in the winters they get depressed, in the spring and summers they may get hypomanicky or manicky, or, or simply weren't depressed, so seasonal depression. But there have been some studies recently that have shown, and again, especially in older people, that bright light can be an effective addition to other treatments for depression, even in non-seasonal depressions, even in San Diego where the sun always shines. Uh, and I think the, the best bright light may not be the, you know, the machine that you, you, know, you look at or that you wear in your eyes, but getting out in the sun for an hour a day. Uh, a walk on the beach in the morning in San Diego is bright light therapy, and it's probably more effective than, than sitting in your room with a, with a bright light. But if you can't get out at the beach for an hour walk in the morning, uh, bright lights can be very helpful. ECT, for the more severe, resistant, psychotic depressions, uh, electroconvulsive therapy still can be a very, very effective treatment. And more and more, people are now turning to uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, RTMS, as a potential alternative to ECT, which is far less invasive, uh, and, and also appears to be uh, very effective for some people. Uh, we're still, you know, the, the evidence base for it is still growing. Uh, so um, these are some of the alternatives to medications and psychotherapy. Again, exercise, bright light, and, and a, a walk in the sun. Don't tell your dermatologist I said this, but, you know, a walk in the morning in the sun on the beach has profound antidepressant effects that can really enhance the effectiveness of whatever psychotherapy or medication you might be taking for depression. ECT for very severe refractory depressions uh, and uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation is a possibility uh, for some people with depression. Uh, it's now, and a lot of insurances are now covering it, and it's getting much more available, and we're building up a database for its effectiveness. There are other non-pharmacologic interventions that, that are applicable in uh, long-term facilities, uh, which can really enhance uh, kind of wellness and, and diminish depression. Uh, one is simply educating the caregivers in these settings uh, to be more aware of depression, to be able to diagnose this, and, and once recognizing it, to uh, be able to help the person uh, appreciate some of the effective treatments for it. Uh, so educating caregivers in these settings has been shown in and of itself to actually improve depressive outcomes. Uh, symptom severity may decrease if the uh, residents are engaged in physical activity, 
are having uh, cognitively stimulating activity and, and things like crossword puzzles, Sudoku, uh, discussion groups, uh, reading uh, groups can be very, very effective in that way. Being involved in group activities, exposure to bright light, uh, and emotional support all have been found effective in diminishing depression in those settings. I want to turn a little bit to depression in, in, in cognitive changes. Dang, now where was I going? Uh, so this is Superman in his later years. Uh, and uh, one, So depression can occur in the context of medical illness. It can also occur in the context of a variety of uh, cognitive disorders, uh, Alzheimer's disorder, Parkinson's, other, other forms of dementia, or simply just a deterioration in one's ability to, uh, to think and remember as effectively. Uh, a large percentage of people with Alzheimer's have depressive symptoms or syndromes. It often occurs early. In an older person, if for the first time in their lives they're getting depressed, think of what medical condition or cognitive condition might this be an early symptom of, and, and, uh, and very early symptom of uh, Alzheimer's disorder uh, can be uh, depressive symptoms. When depression is there in the context of a cognitive disorder, it further impairs the quality of life, it increases disability, it increases the likelihood of placement in long-term facilities, and it's associated with increased mortality. Okay. Do antidepressants work in the context of significant dementias and cognitive disorders? This is a collection of studies looking at patients who have been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease who also have been diagnosed with depression and treated for depression. In, in the first of these studies, uh, done in 1989, uh, imipramine was the antidepressant used, one of the old tricyclics, one of the first antidepressants to be around. That was what was available back then. And imipramine was no more effective than placebo uh, and had more side effects, more adverse events. So it wasn't such a great drug there. In, I'm not going to go through each of the studies. There have been a couple studies where the antidepressant was more effective than placebo, but even more studies where the antidepressant was actually no more effective than placebo. In this population of people with a full-blown dementia and a major depressive disorder. So if they're better than placebo, not overwhelmingly so, maybe by a little in some studies delivered in some ways. But the problem with each of these studies, not a problem, it's a good thing. One of the issues in each of these studies is that the placebo rates of response were very high. It's counterintuitive in some ways. So you think, what group of people are the least likely to respond to placebo? Patients with Alzheimer's disease and major depression, that double whammy, they're not going to respond to placebo. They really need active dynamite, right? Wrong. Loving care, frequent sessions, monitoring symptoms, caring about symptoms go a long way in that population. So the placebo rates were so high that there wasn't room for the antidepressants to be even more beneficial in these studies. So that's one population where I think tender love and care, which is what is given in these studies, trumps the active ingredients of the antidepressant medications. Okay. Problem-solving therapy. 
Uh, a, a large study was done with a specific form of therapy meant to, to help people who are older who are having problems with their executive function, with their ability to problem solve, to prioritize, uh, to solve tasks, uh, to do two things at once. Uh, those are problems that often occur in aging and may occur with depression. So in that context, we know antidepressants don't work that well in that population. So there is an attempt to find a good therapy. So problem-solving therapy was born in that context. Uh, and, and the problem th therapy was meant to maximize the patient's skills in addressing problems, in, in helping to learn how to solve problems. In that study, problem-solving therapy, which is the, the top line here, the darker green one, was found to be more effective Oh, and this is problem solving. It's the lighter green one is problem solving therapy. By about the sixth week, it separated significantly from the group that got supportive therapy only uh, and was more effective. And this has been replicated. So problem solving therapy has been found to be a very effective therapy for individuals with cognitive difficulties and major depression. So do antidepressants help depressed patients? With Alzheimer's disease, maybe, but not much more than placebo. Does psychotherapy help? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, so again, Freud wasn't right in that direction. Uh, the third thing, so I mentioned depression occurs in the context of medical illness in late life. It occurs in the context of cognitive dysfunction in late life. It also occurs in the context of a variety of adverse life events that occur as we get older. Who in this room hasn't lost a loved one to death somewhere along the way? It's common. Uh, who in the year, you know, there, there are several of us who are retired. We've lost our jobs. Uh, one of the reasons I don't think I'm ever going to retire is because I have the knowledge that when my father retired after his uh, first major heart attack in his 60s, he got depressed, chronically slow, and was never the same again. Uh, and so my brother, my sister, and myself uh, fear retirement with a passion. Uh, and so my brother is an 85-year-old judge. My sister is a 75-year-old sex therapist and psychologist, and, and I'm still going uh, at my age. So, um, uh, but retirement, you know, can, is a loss, loss of a job, loss of money, loss of homes, loss of friends, loss of abilities that occur. We we can't do the things we used to do. Uh, loss of the same health, sometimes loss of hopes and dreams. We have to sort of reorder uh, what we can do with the rest of our lives. And, and certainly bereavement is another significant loss in late life. And the one that I'm going to talk about now is uh, loss through bereavement. Uh, in part, it's a paradigm for other losses. So what we learn about bereavement, I think we can apply to other losses, but bereavement is datable, it's ubiquitous, it's universal. Uh, it's irreversible, uh, so it has certain characteristics that lends itself well to study, and, and that's something that I've been studying. Uh, so what's the relationship between bereavement, that's loss of somebody through death, and depression? Well, a lot of people say that, God, depression's a normal consequence of bereavement. It shouldn't be diagnosed, it shouldn't be treated, and if you try to treat it, you're just going to interfere with grief. That's the, what I learned when I was a resident. And like so many things I learned, we've learned better since. And, and we no longer believe that's true, that in fact, 
feeling depressed and unhappy is part of grief, but depression with a capital D, major depressive disorder, is not part of normal grief. And in fact, when somebody meets full criteria for major depression, even if it's after a loved one died, even if it's after one's spouse and life partner dies or a child dies, the, uh, the depression itself, if it's there, tends to be as enduring and recurrent as other depressions. It tends to be associated with as much other morbidity and comorbidity and general medical problems and disability as other depressions. It's associated with higher mortality rates just like other depressions, and it responds to treatment just like other depressions. So what we learned is wrong, that yes, sadness and unhappiness is part of grief, but a full-blown major depressive disorder even if it occurs in the context of loss of a loved one through death, is still a major depressive disorder. And we fool ourselves by, again, this understandable thing, saying, well, of course that person's depressed. Well, that person, if they have a major depressive disorder, and especially if it's a severe one, almost always it's in somebody who's had it before. It's not their first one. And it probably requires treatment just like any other major depression. And a, a colleague and friend of mine talks about the fallacy of misplaced empathy. And that is by being understanding and compassionate, we sometimes do patients a disservice saying, of course, they're depressed, when major depressive disorder is never an of course. It, it's a condition. And, and it's one that doesn't always require meds or, or treatment, but it requires attention and the possibility of meds or other psychotherapeutic uh, treatment. We can differentiate, uh, to some extent, uh, grief or major depression. So when you're bereaved, you may not sleep as well. You're certainly going to be sad. You're going to be crying. You might be thinking about death and dying because someone just died. So there are a lot of symptoms that overlap with depression. But in uh, depression, the low feelings are much more pervasive they're not there just in the context of thinking about the person who's died. Uh, in grief, the, the low feelings tend to occur in waves and bursts. They come on and they may be really strong for 10 or 15 minutes, then they go away. That's not the way that the dysphoria in depression is, which is more pervasive and persistent. In grief, and, and all of us have, uh, have been bereaved at some time or another, uh, in addition to feeling sad and unhappy and blue and empty, you also have moments of feeling happy and pleasant and warm and, and positive memories and being with friends and companions is, uh, uh, is, is helpful, uh, you're consolable, uh, and, uh, and, and that's not the characteristics of a major depressive disorder. Uh, the, uh, also, the, the predominant mood in grief is, is feeling lost and feeling empty. The predominant mood in depression is, is feeling miserably unhappy and, uh, and unable to enjoy anything. Okay. Subtle differences. In uh, depression, uh, the, off, the guilt one feels is because you're a worthless human being or a bad person. You don't deserve to live. The guilt one feels in grief is, is really focused on letting the person die. I should have made them stop smoking. I should have recognized how bad they were feeling. I should have told them I loved them more often. The shoulda, woulda, coulda, ifs, but, but not the sense that I'm a worthless person and don't deserve to live. 
uh, suicidal ideation, when it occurs in grief, it's really a longing for reunion as opposed to feeling undeserving of life, uh, which is where the suicidal ideation of major depression comes from. So there's subtle differences. But the bigger issue is not so much, is this depression or is it grief? When someone dies, we grieve. Bereavement triggers grief. It's in addition to the grief, is the grief complicated by a major depressive disorder, which may have been triggered by the death of a loved one in a vulnerable person. And if it is, that needs to be attended to. So now I want to shift. I think I have time to the topic I most want to talk about. Uh, It's been at least 15 minutes on, uh, and that is prolonged grief disorder. So bereavement, as I mentioned, can trigger a depressive episode in a vulnerable person, but sometimes the process of grief itself can go awry, different from depression. Okay, And generally, bereavement... It triggers an acute grief reaction, okay, acute grief. That's the response to loss. Most people are resilient. They adapt to their loss. Grief lessens over time. They can get on with the feelings of life and wanting to live, even in the absence of that person who's died. And the grief becomes what we call integrated into their life. And I'll I'll talk a little bit more about what I mean by that. But not always. A minority of people rather than healing and integrating their grief, have what we call prolonged grief disorder. Okay, I'm going to talk about that a little bit. So grief is the response to loss. It's, it's essentially a instinctive. You don't have to will yourself to grieve. Somebody who's meaningful to us dies, you grieve. Okay? It's a bereavement is a special kind of loss. That's a loss when someone dies. So it's different than loss through divorce or financial problems. Grief after bereavement is permanent. Uh, There's no way around that. The only way to totally remove grief is to bring the person back to life. That's not something um, uh, we can offer. So grief is permanent. It doesn't end, but it does change in its character. And we do adapt to it, and it does lessen over time. Uh, A colleague of mine, Kathy Shear at Columbia, says that uh, grief is the form love takes when someone we love dies. And I think that's really a a very good way of thinking about it and can be a helpful way of thinking about it. So so grief is the form love takes when someone we love dies. Everyone grieves in their own way. Uh, Different people grieve differently. Uh, When my uh, mother and father, when, when they died, I didn't have terribly intense grief reactions. Part of it is I tend to be stoical. Part of it is they, they reached a ripe old age, and, and they were ready to die when they died. Uh, uh, the, uh, but um, uh, so, so grief can be fairly mild in, in many cases, uh, and it can also be very intense. So it's different for different people in different situations. And the same person may have a mild grief in one setting and a much more substantial one in another. Uh, and it can change over time. Uh, grief is not a static thing. But there are some important commonalities. Okay? Uh, so we think of the acute grief response as a range of emotions, thoughts, and behaviors, physiologic changes, social, and spiritual changes as well. Uh, most people have a sense of disbelief 
the first reaction is often, oh no, it couldn't have happened. Are you sure? Uh, and, and that sense of disbelief comes and goes over time. It's not just a stage that you get over. Uh, it, it's something that, that stays with us for long periods of time in different ways. Uh, there's frequently strong feelings of yearning and sorrow. Some people say that that's really the most characteristic symptom of, of an acute grief response is yearning, sorrow, longing for the person who's died. It's a mixture of other feelings, including very positive feelings, warmth. Um, and, and when I say positive feelings, a lot of people will disbelieve that, but how many of you have given a eulogy in your life? Uh, lots of hands. Um, well, you never give a eulogy for someone you haven't loved and who you aren't grieving. Uh, often uh, people who you love very much. Uh, also, though, most people who give a eulogy are pretty funny. And eulogies tend to get a lot of laughter, as much laughter as tears. So positive feelings are part of grief as well, even when we lose somebody very near and dear to our hearts. Uh, they come and go. Warmth at being with people, at sharing memories, uh, of reliving the past, uh, are certainly part of normal grief. Uh, but there are also feelings of insecurity. And someone said, when you lose a child, you're losing your future. When you lose a parent, you're losing your past. It, it, life changes, and the meaning of life changes. You have to adapt to it. Sense of emptiness, loss. Uh, think your thoughts be, are very preoccupied on the deceased. That's why one of the reasons we have bereavement leave, whether it's two days, three days, or a week. Uh, people are expected to take some time off while they are allowed to be preoccupied with thoughts about the death and, and the person who died and, and also are allowed to just feel absolutely horrible uh, and be with friends and loved ones and families. And, and you know, as we're preoccupied with the person who's died, our interest in ongoing life and in people and friends are diminished for a period of time. That's all part of normal grief. But the good news is it's usually time limited. And this is a, a list of the symptoms. I won't go through them again. Just a, a couple commonalities about grief. One of the things I learned in, in my studies is there are no circumscribed stages. There's not a stage of denial and then uh, anger and then depression. And those don't exist in real life. Uh, people, th those feelings all wax and wane in intensity over time. Grief does tend to come in bursts and waves, the intense feelings. It, it, in, the waves are more frequent and less triggered in the early days and weeks of the death of a loved one. And over time, they, they're, they're uh, less likely to be as intense. They're less likely to be frequent. And they're more likely to only occur when you're thinking about or uh, reminded in some way of the person who's died rather than they're being autonomous. Positive feelings uh, are intermixed, as we mentioned. The intensity uh, peaks usually in days, uh, maybe weeks, maybe months. We don't have a good time frame for how long it lasts. And I think it's different for different people in different contexts. But it generally peaks within at least several months and then starts to lessen. But it doesn't go, the bad news is it just doesn't totally go away. It doesn't end. It changes. So it evolves over time. The intense emotionality subsides. The thoughts and memories recede into the background. They're available. They're there. They come up at times, at, at anniversaries, happy events, sad events, uh, birthdays, uh, those thoughts and memories. Every time I give a talk on bereavement, I think about my mom and dad. I think about why didn't I tell her I loved her more uh, when she was alive. Uh, 
Uh, most of the thoughts and memories are bittersweet over time. They're not sad. Uh, the sense of disbelief lessens over time, and, and well-being is restored. So acute grief evolves into something we call integrative grief, where the grief now it's in our heart, in our soul, in our behaviors. Okay? person who died rests peacefully in the heart. Okay? Along with a renewed sense of purpose and meaning and connection to others over time, and, and we think of mourning as a way of transforming acute grief, mourning rituals in, into integrated grief, and adaptation to the loss occurs. There are at least three components of adaptation. One is learning to accept the reality of the death and the change in circumstances and the irreversibility of the loss. Coming to grips with that is, is one of the, the key tasks of adapting to the death of a loved one. Okay. A second task is learning how to remain connected to the person who's died. And uh, Freud said that one of the, the work of grief is to detach from the person who's died. In some ways that's true, but in other ways it's not true at all. Uh, you, you have to realign your attachment in a symbolic and psychological and meaningful way with the person who's died, but you don't totally break your bonds with them at all. And, and this is uh, a, from a, a teenager who lost one of his parents. Uh, my heart is perfect because you're inside. That person is maintaining attachment bonds in a way that's comforting and realistic. And on the other side of the life uh, um, uh, equation, uh, George Burns, and many of you know, uh, uh, from Gracie and Allie, many, uh, George and Gracie many years ago, I visit my Gracie weekly. I leave fresh flowers. I tell her about my week. I tell her about the kids. I tell her what I'm doing. And you know what? Not once has she answered back. I know she's listening. That's reassuring. So in a very healthy way, he's maintaining his relationship to his dear uh, Gracie. This quote came from when he was just about 100 years old. Okay? Uh, so maintaining the relationship is an important adaptation to the death of a loved one. It doesn't come easy. And then finally, learning to envision a future with the possibility for meaning and fulfillment. So often early on in grief, the person may feel there's no way I can have a meaningful life without that person in it. But therapy often is, is really focused on helping the person understand that life can still be meaningful and fulfilling even in the absence of that person. Sometimes having ways of memorializing that person by your deeds, by your actions, uh, by your memorial, by the glint in your grandchild's eye who reminds you of the, the person who died. So, so this is the third may, may way of uh, component of adapting. So in a schematic, bereavement triggers acute grief. Adaptation to the grief involves accepting the reality of the loss, maintaining or finding a way to maintain a continuing relationship with the person who's died, envisioning a meaningful future, and the grief transforms into integrated grief in your heart. Acute grief is often painful, but it's normal, it's instinctive, it's long-lasting, doesn't go away, it just lessens, and it requires no formal treatment. There is no effective treatment <coughs> for acute grief other than the support and love of your friends, neighbors, and relatives. However, Sometimes it doesn't occur that way. And ordinary grief gets derailed. And instead of integrated grief, 
what happens is what we call <coughs> prolonged grief disorder or complicated grief, or the DSM-5 calls it persistent complex bereavement disorder. But what it is is a prolongation of intense grief where healing isn't occurring over several months. Instead, the grief remains intense. It's prolonged. If, if it's there for at about six months, the data suggests it's going to be there for years unless something is done to attenuate it, to help with it. We don't diagnose it unless it's also out of keeping with cultural norms and expectations for that person. Uh, and, uh, and it also not only is, is painful, but interferes with ongoing life in some way. <clears throat> so these are the characteristics uh, of prolonged grief disorder. We think of it as kind of analogous to a wound complication. You know, when you get a wound, a, a, a cut in your arm, uh, a scab forms, and that scab is adaptive and, and helps the healing process, and grief is the scab. And in the absence of infection, the scab heals. There are some things that can interfere with the scab of grief so that healing doesn't occur. Okay. So this is a model for complicated grief. Again, bereavement triggers acute grief normally, adaptation, integrated grief. Sometimes, however, there are complications, things that interfere with, uh, with the acute grief process. Some of the complications may be maladaptive thoughts, the shoulda, woulda, coulda, ifs, being caught up in, in guilt feelings that you can't let go of. I should have made him stop smoking. I should have diagnosed his disorder. I should have made him follow his doctor's advice. Uh, I'm guilty. I'm bad. It's my fault. Those kinds of thoughts can be pervasive and, and really interfere with the unfolding of a normal grief response. Dysfunctional behaviors. I have to avoid this pain. I'm not going to think about the person. I'm not going to look at pictures. I'm not going to go to any place we went together. Or I have to avoid this pain. Uh, I'm going to start drinking because uh, that helps, my, it helps me feel numb. Uh, so dysfunctional behaviors interfere with adaptation to grief. Managing intense emotions ineffectively. Uh, uh, and, and that can be really overly thrusting yourself into your grief, being overly preoccupied with it, not letting go, not allowing yourself to feel worthy of getting on with your life in the absence of that person. Or, or sometimes severe social environmental problems. Somebody dies and the body isn't found. Uh, that can be a forerunner to, to complicated or, or prolonged grief responses. Uh, or lawsuits, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the in-laws, the parents blame you, and, and there, there's all sorts of uh, uh, new traumatic situations occurring in the context of loss that can interfere, problems with litigation, et cetera. So those things can complicate it, get in the way of adaptation, prevent grief from becoming integrated, and lead to prolonged grief disorder. And, and I already talked about what that is. The good news is there are lots of treatments for prolonged grief disorder. There are several different types of psychotherapy that have been used. The one I know the most about and I'll say a little bit about is something we call complicated grief therapy. Uh, and, and so I'll talk about that. And I, I raise, and because time is, is moving forward, I'm not going to have much time to talk about medications for complicated grief. So I'll sum up by saying there's essentially no role. Medications don't help. Uh, you know, if you're having trouble sleeping, you know, uh, insomnia doesn't help anyone. Sometimes meds to help someone sleep may be useful. But antidepressant meds, we've just completed a large study 
looking at the role of antidepressant medications for, for uh, prolonged grief disorder. Uh, and we were actually surprised to find the results were that it really was no better than placebo. And even if you added it to someone getting psychotherapy, the psychotherapy was no better if it was given along with meds uh, than placebo. So meds don't have a role in treating complicated grief. Unfortunately, it would have been easy. Uh, the complicated grief therapy that has been best tested is a 16-session um, model that targets, targets the complicated grief symptoms. It's a form of cognitive behavioral therapy, but it also uses strategies of exposure therapy, interpersonal therapy, motivational interventions, gestalt therapy. So it's a hybrid of lots of different therapies, all focused on helping the person adapt to their loss dealing with the loss, accepting the loss, facing the painful feelings of the loss, but also dealing with life after that person, setting goals for oneself, uh, and, and beginning to meet those goals. So the goal is to get grief back on track. So I mentioned 16 sessions. There have been three large randomized controlled studies of this therapy uh, against very active controls. So two of the studies were against something called interpersonal psychotherapy, which is a very effective psychotherapy for depression and, and uh, was thought to be effective for, psych for depression related to grief. So even against interpersonal psychotherapy, uh, the, this form of complicated grief therapy was much more effective okay, uh, in three studies with robust findings. The second of the three studies was only on older adults, people 65 and older, so it works in young as well as old. The third of the studies, the one I mentioned earlier, where we also looked at medications to see is there a role for antidepressant medications in addition to or instead of psychotherapy, we found there wasn't, that the psychotherapy is the treatment of choice. So the overall conclusions from our study is that loss triggers acute grief that usually gets integrated as one adapts to the loss and adaptation progresses, but maladaptive thoughts, feelings, and behaviors can sometimes complicate that grief and impede adaptation when that occurs and grief is prolonged rather than integrated. It's a unique condition. It's not the same as depression. It's not the same as PTSD. Antidepressants don't work very well, but a focused form of psychotherapy works very, very effectively. So in summary, I started off talking about depression in the elderly. It tends to be under-recognized. It tends to be under-treated. Subsyndromal or sub-threshold is the most common variant. And very often, irritability, withdrawal from normal activities, physical aches and pains may be diagnostic clues and may be more prominent than the person actually saying, I'm feeling sad, unhappy, and blue. I'm depressed. Recognition and treatment can be complicated by comorbid general medical and cognitive changes and conditions with the myriad losses that we experience as we get older. But rec the recognition and treatment shouldn't be hindered by those. Uh, and um, by using all available modalities of treatment, meds, therapy, light, exercise, healthy living, etc., using them long enough, and if we're using meds, prescribing them gently but aggressively, treatment can be very effective and even life-saving.
So my last slide, it's not enough to add years to one's life. One must also add life to those years. And I think treating depression in late life and recognizing and treating difficulties with loss, especially uh, with bereavement, when it occurs, it only occurs maybe 7 to 10 at most percent of the time, but when it occurs, it's, it's very amenable to effect to targeted treatment. I think treating depression, treating prolonged bereavement disorder can go a long way towards adding life to our years. So the last, oh, this is my last slide. My last slide is coming soon, I hope. Uh, is um, uh, my goal is to, I, I just had a transition in my career. Part of it is recognizing I'm getting older and, and I'm healthy and, and I'm cognitively intact, I think. Bill may tell me differently. Uh, and, uh, but it's time. I was very influenced by, I don't know if any of you read Irving Yalom, but one of his uh, most recent books is, is about his experiences as an 85-year-old psychotherapist treating older people dealing with life and death issues. And I was impacted by that, and it made me realize this is the time in my life, if I'm going to make changes, it's time to do it. So I've made a major change in my career path, uh, and part of that change is to begin uh, seeing patients again. And, and I would like to do that as part of a UCSD mood and bereavement treatment center, actually. And, and so our goal is to start such an animal uh, and, and to start it on a very small scale, but to start it relatively soon. Uh, so um, uh, we hope to, to have uh, something like this up and running by late fall. Uh, and, and uh, you know, for me, uh, entering this stage of my life, uh, this will be, I think, a, a, an invaluable way of, of putting, keeping meaning in my life and, and something that I really want to do. Uh, we don't have it up and running yet, but hopefully soon. So uh, with that, thank you so much for your attention. So I haven't, uh, the, the, um, so we is, is a computer program where you can get physical activity and exercise program uh, that I know is being used a lot here. I, I haven't seen a study of that as a treatment of a depressive disorder, but I think it, my guess would be it can be a, a very effective way of um, attenuating or helping with any other treatment because it keeps one occupied both cognitively and physically. Uh, and uh, I, I know that it's being used in our, uh, our, our, unit, our, our geriatric uh, mental health unit. Uh, I wonder, Danielle, are you here? You might, or, okay, because I, I would ask her if she knew more about it. But um, uh, I think there's great potential in it. I'm not aware of any studies that, are, that have been done in the last two years specifically geared towards treating depression, though. Okay. Yes.
Okay. Two great questions. I'll repeat them. Uh, the first was thank you. You're welcome. Uh, the, um, uh, the question about mar- medical marijuana and its use, uh, I'll, I'll answer that first. I'm going to add a third question to it. Uh, remind me. Um, the, uh, so uh, medical marijuana, uh, and, and there are a lot of uh, work being here at, done at UCSD with medical marijuana. Dr. Grant, our, the chair of our department, has done a lot of work in that area. Uh, and it can be useful for a lot of conditions. Uh, I have a friend with Parkinson's disease and, and, and swears that that makes the difference between being able to live or not, uh, the, the marijuana in terms of his, the pain of his movement disorder. Uh, it hasn't been studied as much for depression. I had a, a patient, an elderly patient, who uh, had been, some of you have had the experience, I'm sure, uh, with depression where you've been on lots of meds. Sometimes the med works, but after six months or a year, it stops working. You, you increase the dose, it still doesn't work. You try something else, it works for a while, and, and eventually you're on 15 different drugs. You've tried them all three times, and you're still depressed. Uh, I had a patient like that. And um, uh, on, on his, so he asked me, Can I try some med? Will you prescribe medical marijuana? And, and, you know, my answer was, of course. I, we, there was no data that it was effective. He read something, and he read a case report on it. Uh, there was no downside. He was suffering. All of the things in, in my toolbox hadn't worked already. He had been in good therapy as well. And we tried it. He had a marvelous response. Uh, but his family made him stop taking it because they thought he'd get addicted. He was a 75-year-old man with chronic, severe, recurrent depression. Uh, but his, his children made him stop taking it. This man ultimately died by suicide, actually. Uh, it helped, and I don't know that, that it would have lasted, but, but he had a very good short-term response. Um, the downside was that uh, he would drive to his appointments and he refused to give up his license. And, and when he was stoned, he was a terrible, dangerous driver. So, uh, uh, but, uh, but uh, so, so I think it may well have a role for some people. Uh, and, I, and I know some people who take medical marijuana feel calmer, less anxious, less depressed, more hopeful. So I think it may have a role. It hasn't been very well studied for depression, and certainly not for depression in the elderly. The next question was, um, uh, what was your next question again? <laughs> Family. Uh, so uh, when we when we try to guess which med for which person, uh, if somebody has let, let's say they say, gee, you know, 20 years ago I was on uh, paroxetine, and it really helped, and I got way better, and, and uh, so that would say, well, let's try paroxetine. That that you know helped before. It's probably going to help again. That's a good rule of thumb. Person though says, well, I've never been on an antidepressant before. Uh, um, but my next-door neighbor was on paroxetine, and it really helped him. I would still try paroxetine because he's got a positive placebo uh, uh, thing going for him. If he says, um, you know, my sister was on paroxetine, and it really helped her, uh, it's a reasonable thing to try, but the data that it's really going to be more effective than anything else you might try is not very strong. So all things being equal, you try to be rational. Part of being rational is if something's helped before, try it again. If a blood relative, because there are genetic components to all this, has had something that's helped, try that one first. But I'm not overly confident that that's going to be the right one. The third question you didn't ask, but I thought you would, was ketamine. Uh, Everyone's heard about ketamine, the wonder drug. And... uh, 
so, so ketamine is an anesthetic uh, that's also a psychomimetic drug. It, it can you know, cause hallucinations and psychosis. And there's very good data that ketamine can be a very rapidly acting antidepressant and also very ra- rapidly acting anti-suicidal agent. So there's lots of excitement and research being done with ketamine. The, the issue is it has to, it's given generally intravenously. It tends to, uh, to be very effective for a week or two. We don't know much about long-term effects. We don't know much about long-term effectiveness. We don't know much about long-term safety. Uh, and, and so a lot more research needs to be done. Uh, we are doing some ketamine here at UCSD now for severe refractory depressions, uh, and, and certainly the results are looking promising, but a whole lot more research needs to be done on it. So that, that's the third question you didn't ask. Uh, yes? Do you believe that depression can be genetic? Do I believe depression can be genetic? It's not a matter of do I believe it. It is. Uh, there's a genetic component. Uh, and uh, it doesn't mean that if both your father and mother and twin sister have been depressed that you will. So it's not inevitable. Uh, but it does increase the likelihood a lot. So there's, there's clearly a genetic component. There's an environmental component. There's a social component. Uh, it, it is, you know, if we think of illnesses that are biopsychosocial, biological, psychological, and social, depression is probably the best example of that. Uh, but there, there's certainly, so, it, you know, if you're depressed, it doesn't mean don't have children. It doesn't mean your children are inevitably going to be depressed. But it, it does increase the potential risk and, and something to look out for. Yes. Thank you so much for tonight. I appreciated everything you said. I'm interested in your take on doing genetic testing to determine which antidepressants may be better. Yeah, controversial area. So the, the the question is: Is genetic testing is genetic testing ready for prime time? I do not believe so. We have a uh, one of my colleagues at UCSD, John Kelso. Uh, is developing kind of genetic tools for bipolar disorder, for lithium responsivity. Uh, As far as I'm concerned, these are still uh, uh, research tools with great promise for the future. Uh, I'm a little pessimistic that that it's going to help us in my lifetime, but I may be wrong because, uh, you know, who would have guessed that cell phones would have been here in my lifetime either? Uh, uh, But uh, a lot of research is being done to look at Genetic testing, maybe even not selecting necessarily the best medication, but selecting what might have the most side effects, uh, increasing the odds of a particular med. Uh, uh, you know, certain people metabolize drugs differently, and, and genetic testing can help determine what kind of metabolizer we are. Uh, so it's, it's an area, uh, and it's an area, if we start this mood center that I'm talking about, uh, there will be genetic testing as some of the research being done in that mood center, and, and Dr. Kelso will be, you know, one of the leaders in that research. Okay. I think we have time for one or two more. Uh, yeah. Let's take two more questions. Go ahead. Thank you for uh, adjusting and giving permission for us to let you know that we're having <laughs> I've, I've a lot of experience with grief in my life. I'm also a professional, and so I deal with these things. Uh, but most recently, 
my hearing loss, and I would imagine vision loss, seems to be a much more uh, difficult grief to handle. Sorry, that's my, because my, uh, my uh, hearing aids are connected to my cell phone and that interrupts, I'm sorry. No problem. Uh, so, uh, this major hearing loss is, uh, seems to be a more difficult type of grief to handle. Yeah. And it's harder to find people who understand that. Uh, and so since I'm about to be 89, I've experienced a lot of losses and grief each month. Uh, but this one is really tough. Yeah. And I hope uh, that you will go deeper in that in your work. And I was glad you mentioned it. Could you say a little more about what you've learned so far? Well, in terms of, of hearing loss per se, I haven't myself uh, studied it or, or learned a, a lot about it. I do know that loss of hearing can be a significant stressor. And, and like all stressors and losses, it can trigger depression, anxiety, demoralization, uh, grief responses. One of the things we've learned, I, I mentioned in the grief study that we study bereavement, but, but it's an example of loss. And I think what we learn about bereavement probably can be applied to grief, to, to hearing loss. And that is most people sad, unhappy, grieve the loss of hearing, adapt to it in some way, don't fully get over it. it, it you don't ever hear as well again. But for most people, uh, you get on with your life, you adapt to it in different ways, you find ways of accommodating to it, you don't necessarily uh, um, uh, lose your ability to function because of it. You certainly don't necessarily have a major depressive disorder. But for vulnerable people, like any other stress event, it can trigger a stress response or a depression. And, and if you have a full-blown major depressive disorder, even if you think it was triggered by a hearing loss, then the depression probably even worsens your, uh, not, it may not worsen the hearing, but it worsens your capacity to cope with it and deal with it and could be treatable. Uh, there are people who are studying hearing loss as a stressor uh, and, and as a trigger for a variety of different stress responses. It's a literature I'm not uh, totally on top of uh, at this point. But I, I think, you know, whether it's hearing loss or visual loss or um, uh, the, the inability to be as physically active, uh, whether it's pain, uh, all of those can be substantial triggers to a variety of stress-related events uh, and issues to, to, that we need to learn to adapt to and deal with and that can trigger a depression. I don't know if that totally answers your question. You. Yeah. You're welcome. We have time. I think we have time for one more comment or question. Yeah. Uh, the Alzheimer's Association has a variety of programs for caregivers. Yeah. I was wondering if you have any information on data or anything as to whether those programs are helpful or how 
So do, do programs, so <laughs> this is going to be a hard one for me to answer in, in less than a few minutes because caregiving has become uh, a, a very important topic to me in a, in a different setting. And I'll tell you what that setting is, even though you didn't ask, but tough luck. Uh, and, and that's we're, we're developing here at UCSD, and in, in other medical centers are doing the same thing, a care for the caregivers uh, program where the recognition is that doctors and nurses are often uh, vulnerable uh, to all sorts of uh, um, emotional um, uh, disruptive experiences uh, when, when you know, patients die, bad things happen. Sometimes they happen because the illnesses just are untreatable. Sometimes they happen because we make mistakes. And, and when someone has a really bad event, especially if it's a mistake we made, it's really hard to deal with. And, and uh, so caregivers need care. And, and burnout is very prevalent. So medical students, doctors have very high rates of burnout. And we're starting to develop programs to try and increase resilience, increase wellness, and decrease burnout. And, and so far, programs that, that help people work in groups, talk to each other, share problems instead of dealing with them alone, have been found very effective to reduce burnout and reduce depression in professional medical caregivers. I think the same principles are there, that uh, Alzheimer's care, it's an extraordinarily stressful uh, uh, thing to care for a loved one whose cognitive functions are deteriorating uh, and who is that much closer to, to losing who they are and to dying. And support groups, reading materials, education can be phenomenally effective in providing care for those caregivers so they can go on giving the best care possible and, and also living their own lives as best as possible. So I think they're enormously helpful. They're long overdue. Uh, just like the, the care for the caregivers we're now giving for medical professionals who are, are also languishing in, in often very difficult situations. And, and what our culture in medicine has always been deal with it. We're tough, we're strong, uh, and deal with it in silence. Don't bother anyone with it. Don't complain. That's been the culture for Alzheimer's caregivers as well, and, uh, and that's an absolutely inappropriate culture. Um, so we need to recognize how difficult and challenging it is. We need to reward each other for, for what we're doing, uh, recognize what we're doing, uh, share and support. Okay. Thank you. I think that's it. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.